Hey, tennis fans, you are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Very happy, Mike, this week. We're welcoming back one of our favorite sports hosts, personalities, and guests on the podcast, Blair Henley, and she's one of uh, two guests this week as well. It's a double episode, that's right, and we're going to start things off in a moment with Blair, um, one of our favorites, one of our long-standing regulars who always makes time for us, even when she's just come back from a grueling couple weeks on tour. So we appreciate that. And later, we've also got, from a Canadian perspective, Anita Camella, who's the Senior Director of Facilities Development with Tennis Canada, to talk about the indoor court initiative um, that has really been a, a big one for Tennis Canada over the last couple of years, getting more tennis rackets in people's hands 12 months of the year up here. So we'll speak with Anita in a little bit. We've got Blair right now, and we've got a really great giveaway from Davis Cup, any Milos Raonic fans are going to want to stick around and listen for this one. We're going to dump that later in the episode. But for right now, Ben, take it away, Blair Henley. Yeah, Blair, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And as you join us, I know you worked a, a busy couple of weeks on the U.S. hardcourt swing. We saw tournaments Dallas and, and Del Rey. Just maybe <clears throat> maybe describe the, the role you were working there, the atmosphere, and the, the experience of uh, handling those two tournaments the past two weeks. Yeah, well, first off, am I eligible for the giveaway? That's the most important question. It's open to all our listeners. So as long as you're listening and you follow yeah, the if, if you listen player. back to the full episode, sure, why not? <laughs> okay, perfect. I just want to establish that early. Um, yes, it's been a crazy couple of weeks. I just got back uh, late last night because we had a Monday final in Delray Beach. I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But but I I know you know they're back to back two fifties in the U.S. They tend to have fairly similar fields. Uh, but I, I find them to be useful in terms of information, how players are looking, um, how a lot of the American players are looking. And there are a lot of American players near the top of the game right now. Um, and that, that hasn't always been the case on the men's side, but, but we have players of note now. And so I think the last two weeks were actually pretty educational in terms of uh, where things stand for a lot of those guys, and especially in a, in an Olympic year, where it'll be interesting to see how how those teams shake out. I don't know. I I, I loved it. I two fifties for me are where it's at. I hope you know. I know that that there's a super tour looming. Maybe I would be super sad if the two fifties ever went away. And when people ask me which tournament should I go to, you know, what's your favorite? Where should I start? I always recommend a two fifty first because of the access, the fact that the players are a little bit more relaxed, the fact that there's generally no bad seat in the stadium, you get practice court access that you might not at, at a much bigger tournament, or at least you're competing with far more people at a bigger tournament. So I, I think they're both great. Dallas and, and Del Rey are both completely different. I It's funny, it's amazing to me that both Tommy Paul and Marcos Giron had such incredible weeks back to back because going from a low bouncing kind of slow indoor court in Dallas with different balls. So you go from Dunlop to pen balls in Delray. You go from not having condition weather conditions to having, you know, wind, sun, rain, you name it in Delray. Mm -hmm. The fact that you could go from completely, you know, different Dallas to a different Delray and still have success, I think is a, a really good sign for both of those guys in particular. They were sort of the two standouts 
for me, um, uh, Tommy and Marcos, but uh, lots of, I mean, it was fun to see Ben in Dallas. Ben played doubles in Dallas. And I think that was something, you know, he ended up getting, you know, pretty well tuned by Tommy Paul, but he also was on the court late. He played a lot of tennis leading up to that because he was playing doubles and he had a couple of doubles matches that went to the match tie break. So he had a lot of time on court. I wasn't super surprised by that results um, to Tommy just because I feel like the gas tank might've been a little bit low for Ben, but I got to tell you the superstar factor for Ben is significant. Uh, people are hanging around to watch Ben play doubles. Um, and, and I feel like that that's when you know you have a star is like they don't, they, you know, and hopefully they would have stuck around for doubles anyway. But mm -hmm. sometimes when doubles is the last match of the day, you end up with a thin crowd. That was not the case in Dallas. People wanted to see Ben Shelton and he just is a massive personality. And it was fun to see that on U.S. soil as well. So anyway, that's a lot of words to say. It was a, a awesome two weeks and to me, really educational and super fun for the fans. We, we definitely got that vibe about Shelton when he was here in Toronto last summer. You could just tell the way he handled himself, the way the crowd responded to him. Um, a future star in so many ways. Um, you guys must be very excited south of the border for sure with what's going on right now with men's tennis. The women's tennis for the Americans has seemingly been strong forever. Um, but it seems like the men are now definitely sort of catching up. I'm going to leave those American questions for Ben. I know he's got a little bit more for you, but something that I just thought of while you were, were speaking about the tennis balls, you know, for, for casual tennis fans or, or hacks like me, where it really wouldn't matter if I'm using a Nerf ball or a tennis ball sometimes, why is it so complicated? Why do we hear, especially it feels like the last year or so, PTPA, Vashik Pospisil, a lot of tennis players are complaining about how tournament to tournament, they can't have any consistency with the tennis balls. But but why is that such a big deal? Because for a lot of, you know, casual fans, they're going to say, hey, isn't a tennis ball a tennis ball? And if you're professional, shouldn't you be able to adapt to those minor changes? Yeah, I mean, I think they do adapt, you know, pretty well. It's not like, you know, somebody, you know, hates playing with, say, pen balls and, and therefore, like, can't hit a ball when they get to a tournament with 10 balls. I think they, they adapt pretty well, but I think at that level, the margins are so small that it, for instance, the Dunlop balls, I have hit with them and they are fine for about a half hour of hitting. And they, by, by the end of that, and, and for the, obviously for the pros and for the men, it's, it's, far less time. Uh, I was talking actually to Chris Eubanks and he was explaining, he's like, when you get new balls, they're fine. But, but by the time it's time to, you know, by the time nine games comes and it's time for new balls, you're like, please, we need new balls just because they fluff up so much. And so that felt depending on the brand of ball behaves differently. Um, and, and I can see absolutely having preferences. I mean, I know, I don't know what ball Cincinnati uses now, but I know for a while Rafa had very strong feelings of whatever ball they used to use. I, I think they've switched since he had, he had issues, but I think there are for sure preferences. And yeah, when the margins are that small, I don't blame someone for being like, Oh, I felt so good last week. And now here I am playing with something that just doesn't feel as good. It's not that they can't adapt. It's not that they won't adapt. It just doesn't feel as good depending on your playing style. And, and that is just one more thing. There's so many things players have to deal with from week to week to also have that on top of it to adjust to when you get to a new site, a new place, a new surface, a new, you know, fan behind the scenes, all the things. I think it's just one thing that they don't want to have to think about, worry about.
Yeah, well said. I wonder if there were so many different types of tennis balls being used back in the day because you just don't remember players um, sort of voicing this um, level of concern, or at least I don't remember it as I was growing up or watching the sport back in the day. Um, also want to ask yeah, you. I also yeah, go wonder ahead. too. All right. Yeah, just with how hard the balls are struck now and with the differences in, mm. in string, I do wonder if, you know, the injury risk becomes much greater when there's even a little bit of change to the ball because of the speed and the reps that players are having to uh, deal with to be at the top of the game. I guess maybe the speed and the, the how hard players were hitting it a long time ago, I think has changed so much. So I don't know who knows um, you guys should, I would love for you guys to get an expert on that and I would eat that podcast up. That's a good one. Good idea. All right. Yeah. Hey, thanks, Blair. Um, one more for me here. Uh, you're talking about 250 level tournaments. You're talking about sort of hidden gems on the tour. And, you know, Ben and I, we got to be honest, we don't get out of Toronto very often. So as much as we'd love to cover, you know, tournaments as often as you do, um, I know our schedules and, and family life for me anyways won't allow it at this stage of the game. But if we were to branch out, we got to Davis Cup in Montreal a few weeks ago. That was fun. If we were to branch out again this year and uh, and do a, a tournament, not one of the, the the bigger ones, but what's a hidden gem you might suggest that's later in the calendar year that would be within striking distance of us here in Toronto um, that you would you know vouch for? Well, this is going to come as a surprise to no one who knows me, but I think everyone should come for the final year of the Hall of Fame Open at mm -hmm. the International Tennis Hall of Fame. Uh, I thought I you hope, might say that. I mean, it was, yeah, it was packed last year. I assume it will be packed out this year as it should be. And just the added bonus of being there for induction weekend, being able to see the museum, which is either about to go under a massive renovation or that's already started. Um, so that's going to be cool to see. I just, it's one of my favorite places in the world. And yeah, I'll, I'll call it within striking distance of you guys. I think yeah. so. Yeah, that's doable. No, yeah. definitely. That's, that's, um that, that one's definitely on the bucket list for sure. Uh, if we circle back to American tennis and I was honestly a little surprised, like watching Dallas and Tommy Paul, he wins. And I'm like, this is only the second title he's won. I, I couldn't believe that. What What do you think has maybe been the difference in him sort of breaking through the past season and a half compared to, you know, it, it felt like he was always sort of on that barrier before um, because obviously he's, he's incredibly talented and a high skill player. Well, Tommy Paul has been around. I mean, he was an incredible junior um, and he was a heralded, you know, young kid coming up in the U.S. system. So on one hand, he's been around for a long time. But on the other hand, Tommy Paul version 2.0, which is when he sort of rededicated himself to the game, has only really been around since maybe early 2021. I think that's when he started working with Brad Stein. And Brad and Tommy has talked about this. Brad essentially said to him, like, listen, you need to respect me. You need to respect the game. You need to respect yourself as a professional tennis player. And if you can do those things, I'm in it for the long haul, but you have to have, you know, respect all of those things. And Tommy has said, okay, like that was sort of his wake up call. And he put the blinders on and developed sort of a new mentality for himself. And I think, so if you, if you look from the origin of Tommy 2.0, you've seen sort of that progress since then. He won, I think the Stockholm title was end of 2021. And, and there has really been 
that steady upward trajectory. It hasn't necessarily been a shot out of the cannon type thing, but there has been a steady upward trajectory that I actually think is more sustainable. I sometimes worry about the players who end up having one amazing result and then everybody's like, well, are mm -hmm. you going to back it up? You know, I, I think his sort of slow and steady wins the, the race approach and throw in a lot of fishing uh, in his spare time, throw in. He just is an incredibly likable person and he will be the first one to say he made a lot of mistakes. Uh, there was immaturity early on in his career and the fact that he's been able to grow, refocus himself. He has an incredible team around him. I love his entire team there from his trainer to his physio. Um, to Brad, they have another coach down there, Hugo Armando, who also works with Venus Williams. They they are like you have to spend a ton of time with your team, and I feel like they would be the group that I would want to spend a ton of time with. They just all are couldn't be more chill and relaxed, and just really seem like they all work together well. What I would love to see for Tommy is for more people to know how great he is. He just is a really great personality. He's funny. He's um, he analyzes the tennis well. Uh, he just is so chill that he's not necessarily, you know, broadcasting himself to the mm -hmm. world, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, you know, when you look at you look at Instagram followers, he's he's not at the top of the list. He, so it just is a matter of I feel like people just need to get to know him. And if he keeps having results like this, I think that's going to happen. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, it was cool, at least for me, seeing. Uh, him and Breakpoint, and you you get a sense that there is like that competitive rival rivalry between the Americans, which I think is awesome. And I look at the rankings now. You know, Taylor Fritz is the top there, and he won Delray. You have Tommy Paul, Tiafo, and Ben Shelton all just uh, one apart from each other. My one concern right now, and people are obviously bringing this up, is Francis Tiafo is is kind of trending in a bad way, and I I don't quite know what's sort of gone wrong with his game, but it feels like he's really slipped basically since last summer and when Ben Shelton beat beat him at the US Open. Do you get any sense there that there's something missing in his game? Is is it a lack of motivation? Because uh, if we look back to 2022, he was on an incredible ascent, of course, dating back at the US Open there. I... I will say the one thing I feel very confident in saying is that it's uh, right now, not a lack of motivation. Um, he's That's now good. working with Diego Moyano and I know that he has been putting in a ton of work uh, on the practice court. He has a personal chef because he wanted to get more lean during the off season. Um, I, you know, he had <laughs> camera when I saw him at the end of, 2023 but i know that he had like a, a goal weight and i was like that's so relatable <laughs> All of, yeah so many of us have a goal weight for for 2024 um but i know that he is putting in the work i but so much of tennis as you guys know is it's a confidence and a belief game um and he it just it's been a while since he has won a string of matches really since I think he won the Stuttgart title last year. Uh, and so I, I feel like it's a matter of trusting what has worked for him and also having that translate into one good run at a tournament to just sort of be like, oh, okay, like this is what I know that I can do. I just, I feel like it's easy to sort of pop out of that and then have it compounded by the fact that he has a lot of points to defend coming up. That the the point defending thing, guys, I am such I mean, this is why I'm not a professional. Well, it's one of several reasons why I'm not a professional athlete. 
I would not do well with the whole having to defend points. And the closer you yeah. get, the more you sort of start white knuckling. And I think it's really easy for even the best athletes in the world to be affected by that. So I, I think there are a few different aspects. Obviously, you know, this is speculation on my part, but having spent some time with them, the, the work part is there. It just, I think, is a belief factor at this point. Thank God we don't have points to defend on the podcast, although we do like to maintain (laughs) or improve on our listeners from a year. This is why we keep having you back on the podcast is to defend the points from when you were last with us, actually. Gosh, I I didn't know I had pressure coming in today. Now now I'm gripping the edge of the desk. Uh, Give us us those sound bites. Yeah, it's tough. Mm -hmm. You're living up to expectations so far. Don't worry. Keep it up here. I don't have a goal weight for 2024, but certainly have goals. Um, I'm wondering for you personally, in terms of when you approach a new tennis season, you're not on court playing, but boy, are you ever as active as the players in the way that you, you know, perform a variety of roles at the tournaments you go to. What do you have in store for 2024? Like what's, what are your goals in terms of your own professional growth in what you're doing, which it really seems over the last, I mean, we've known you for like five years now. And I feel like Every year, there's just more and more on your plate, and we see in more and more places and more and more roles, and and just getting laughs and great reactions from more and more players. So, well, what's in store for you this year? What would you like to to attain, or what are some new things that you're looking to accomplish personally? Wow, big life questions, Mike. Uh, I this is what interests me, you know. So, <laughs> I uh, first of all, thank you. I feel incredibly thankful for what I have gotten to do. And I don't take it for granted because who knows what tomorrow holds. But um, I would, I, I am as of right now going to be doing some more commentary this year. It's kind of the final frontier for me. I feel like I've done just about everything else um, and haven't done a ton of things on the commentary side. So um, I think I can officially say that I'm going to be at the Savannah Challenger. Um, so Mike, Mike Cation is taking a week off so I can uh, slide on in and do nice. uh, get some commentary reps there, which, listen, there's nothing like doing five matches a day. You're, you're, <laughs> you're either going to sink or swim uh, in, in that setting. So hopefully some more commentary. And uh, I would love you know, as much as the on-court interview stuff is great, it would be, I think it would be so fun to be able to take some of these relationships that I've been really fortunate to have with players and these cool conversations that I've been able to have with them, whether it's doing, you know, the Netflix reunions or post-match interviews or stuff for social media. I would love to have an outlet for that sort of thing that is, I don't know, who knows, it could be on a podcast, it could be on a broadcast somewhere, It'd be fun one day to have like a a real home for those things where I could actually, you you could produce almost like a show um, because I really still do feel incredibly passionately about the fact that as much as the ins and outs of the actual tennis are great, if you can add personality to those things, that is what creates fans. And I want tennis to grow. And in order for that to happen, you have to have people who care about it and care about the people. So if, if, if there was a way that I could do that in a more formal capacity that just, you know, fell into my lap, that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> Maybe you'll write a behind the scenes, tell all book about your interactions over the years. I'd, I'd buy a copy of that for sure. That'd be cool. I, I don't know that I would actually write it under my own name. That, that would be, <laughs> that would be, sweet. um, but I, I will tell you guys, if you don't mind me adding, um, since we're ta- on this topic, I spent a lot of time with Adrian Manorino over the past couple of weeks, who has 
had a mana renaissance at age 35. He's mm -hmm. still such a mystery to most of us because he just doesn't really do press unless he absolutely has to. And we ended up doing a, it was like a social media sponsor thing in Delray Beach. I didn't know it was happening. I had like, I don't know, a couple hours warning maybe. And they were like, you're just going to go for a drive in the, the tournament BMW with Adrian Manorino. And I was like, huh, okay. I don't know that he's going to think that's a lot of fun, but <laughs> sure. That's, that's what you need me to do. I am at your service. It ended up being a fascinating car ride. Uh, he, one of the questions I asked him uh, and, and rewinding a little bit, we sort of had a fun moment on court in Dallas when you know, he mentioned in Australia that tequila was the secret of his yep. newfound success at 35. And I took it upon myself to go buy him a bottle of tequila and present it to him on court in, nice uh, touch. in Dallas. I, I don't know that he's ever smiled so big, I, at least not in my presence. So I, I was like, yes, this is a this is a win. But sort of the follow up was that car ride in Delray. And it was just fascinating to get to just rapid fire questions at him in like not in a stadium setting where I feel like that's probably where he feels less comfortable. Um, but just hearing about, you know, I was like, listen, you leave a lot, of, a lot of money on the table. You are a top 20 player without a clothing sponsor, without a, you know, you, you could have these things presumably if you wanted to do more of the stuff that's in the public eye. And he, I thought gave the greatest answer. He was like, listen, Yes, I know that I could if I wanted to do all those things, but I have everything I need and I don't like doing that other stuff. So why would I do it? And I was like, man, I can't argue with you there. Mm -hmm. That's makes total sense. He's like, I like tennis. I don't like doing the other stuff. Um, he genuinely doesn't, I don't think, love being around people. I, I at one point I was like, but don't you love like, you know, there are kids who look up to you. And he's like, no, I actually, that's, that is really problematic because they come up to me and want me to sign autographs and they say, good luck against so-and-so. And the so-and-so is his next opponent. And he famously doesn't find out who he plays until oh, minutes gosh. before the match. So these kids, so he's like, I don't even really like that the kids like me because they blow the surprise of who my next opponent is. And I don't want to know. Anyway, these are the things that I'm like, I feel like if people could be privy to more of that sort of thing where it's just like a casual chat. It's, it's, I just think it would endear people to the players and in a way that it's hard to be currently, if that makes sense. Well, hopefully that spot you did doesn't go viral. Cause that'd be the opposite of what he'd want, I guess. Right. <laughs> well, I, <laughs> it's funny. I, it didn't get edited during the tournament, but you better believe I'm going to be on it. Like, Hey guys, have to. when, Oh, and and as one more teaser, if and when that piece ever ever uh, makes it to air or it makes it to the internet, I asked him. I was like, "Does anybody ever say to you from the stands, like, do fans say, yo, Adrian?'" Uh, <laughs> and he yeah. goes, "He goes, yes." And everyone who does it thinks they're the first person to do it. <laughs> Anyway, it just like he just doesn't love humans, other humans, except for his except family, for you. And his friends. And well, I don't know if he likes me. He had to put up with me because he. This was a 
you know, one of those things, stars and aces at the tournament that he had to do. He could not say no to this. So apologies to Adrian Manorino. I I took advantage. I asked all the questions. <laughs> we were well, just we were just speaking about him last week, Ben. I think we yeah, were talking about I, sort I of know. You, under... you chose him as your favorite underrated player. Um, you know, an underreported on player, I feel like, yeah, too. So it's yeah, kind of interesting definitely. that you're bringing him up now. Oh, I, I have to say, because I... I... Perfect. I mean, I saw the photo of you handing him the tequila and I definitely have never seen that big a smile or laugh or reaction from Adrian Manorino in my life. So success already right there. That was that was awesome. Um, I want to ask you about, you know, obviously the big events that are around the corner, like we still have tournaments ongoing in the next couple of weeks, but Sunshine Double is around the corner with Indian Wells, Miami. Uh, we've seen a bit of jostling at the top. Yannick Sinner did an incredible job backing up his title, uh, winning in Rotterdam. What do you think are maybe a couple key storylines you might have your eyes on as the Sunshine Double arrives? And of course, it's it's a huge stretch of tournaments for the Americans as well. Well, that that was probably, and granted, it's maybe a little bit of recency bias since I've spent a whole lot of time with them over the past couple of weeks. But I do want to see if the Americans can do something. They can they can do it on the smaller American stages, but can they do it on the bigger American stages? I think that would be really cool if one of those guys could could build on you know the early season and and really do well in Indian Wells or Miami. Uh, on the women's side, gosh, I mean roll the dice, I guess it could be anything. There's so many potential options. Um, definitely want to see if Rabakana, who has historically done well in Indian Wells, I, I would pick her as, as somebody who I want to see how she does uh, there again this year, but gosh, the storylines abound. I sure hope Ons is, is back feeling healthy again soon. Um, Layla has, has had some wins lately to bring yep. in, bring in the Canadian and, you know, I, I would love to see her find her groove, um, especially in a place, gosh, Indian Wells or Miami. I just feel like she is a crowd magnet. And yeah, I would love to love to see a, a big run for her at one of those places. Layla is the, the biggest um, number of hits we've ever had for an episode. And that was going back even. Really? Yeah. And that, yeah. that even surprised us. And we love her. We think she's great. But of all the episodes we've sure. ever done, I think one of hers was when she won in Mexico or made finals in Mexico once. And it just like through the roof. It blew our minds. I don't know what happened. It was uh, it was fantastic. Um, my, my last question for you, Blair. Um, and thanks again for joining us. And this has been terrific. So it's um, we really appreciate having you back with us. And it's a Canadian slanted question. And maybe you already kind of touched on it, I guess, with your last answer. Maybe not. But if all the Canadians are healthy this year, male and female, and that sure has been something that's been difficult to achieve really ever, it seems like, for our country. But I think you could say that about any nation's tennis players. Such a grueling sport. Which one do you think stands to have the deepest run at a major in singles this year? Because last year was admittedly kind of a step backwards from what Canadian tennis fans were, were looking forward to. Do you guys know the most recent status update for Bianca? I I had heard that she was hopeful to play India Wells, but I I still think at that point it was a little bit touch and go. Got it. I I feel like it would be really hard for me to bet against Bianca ever, just because I feel like she is, and I know she has played so so little tennis, but mm. there is just some sort of magic that happens every time she steps out on the court. I remember I think it was in Indian Wells last year where she had a couple of good wins and gosh, it was so much fun. Like she's so much fun. And I always think back to what Andy Roddick 
uh, during the COVID years when we were doing or COVID year, we were doing some stuff for the Hall of Fame. And he said that was his favorite player to watch. And I'm like, that makes so much sense to me because he the way he described it was even if you don't know anything about tennis, you can watch her play and be like, into it um so i maybe it's wishful thinking given uh how long she's been out but i'm gonna go ahead and say bianca with an honorable mention to uh dennis i think i i, I hope i think and hope that dennis will find his groove at some point this year i i love that i love that answer and i, I have some confidence dennis can get back up in the rankings too he, he looks like he's in a a good place right now and and getting his match reps and i think success is just around the corner uh, Blair, thanks so much as always for taking the time. It was awesome watching your coverage in Dallas and Del Rey and showcasing a couple of the unsung but great tournaments on the calendar. And I know for us, you're always one of our favorite guests on the calendar when we get you. So thanks so much. Always a pleasure, guys. And uh, yeah, hope that I successfully defended my points. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck with the Milos Roundage giveaway that we're going to promote right now after you uh, take off here. Thank you. I can't wait. <laughs> See you, Blair. There you have it. One of our favorite guests, as always. I think she's joined us every single year since we started Matchpoint Canada, Blair Henley, uh, which is fantastic. She's one of my favorite people to speak to in this sport. Yeah, she's one of our originals. I feel like we should get her in twice a year. And maybe we have in the past. She's probably one of the guests that we have oh, had maybe. twice yeah. a year. Um, because I feel like once isn't enough. And even though that was a pretty like nice, decently sized interview... There's so much more I still want to get to. So uh, that's when you know you've got a good one, when you, you know you wrap it up and it leaves you wanting more, right? Exactly. And uh, I, I love that she is highlighting American tennis. I've, I've said numerous times in the past on this podcast, we'd love like a Canadian-American tennis rivalry. And just further growing this sport in North America, I think it has so much potential. We see it here, obviously, with how much more popular tennis has become, which is fantastic um but I, I think we can feel that in the states in, in terms of viewership as well and those two tournaments dallas and del rey are awesome examples for anybody who has a chance to go it's electric tennis and blair brings out the personality of the players so well when she works any event absolutely and and i'd love to see if the canadians could sort of peak at the same time as the americans because it kind of seems yeah. almost to me like when the canadian men were doing well the american ones weren't and now it's kind of vice versa but It'd be great if they could all click at the same time. Um, let's move along to, uh, and this interested Blair quite a bit. We'll see if she throws her name in on this giveaway, but we've got a signed tennis ball from Canada's Milos Raonic from the Davis Cup, where Ben and I just were a couple of weeks ago in Montreal. Pretty cool item to give away to Canadian tennis fans or just tennis fans of the big serving Canadian legend. Um, so that's what we have up for grabs this week, Ben. And how are we going to allow our listeners to enter this one? Yeah, I mean, come find us on Twitter at MatchPointCan. Simply repost the podcast, give us a, a reshare and spread the word. Like, subscribe, obviously, as well would be fan fantastic. And we will enter you into the draw for a giveaway for this tennis ball signed by Wimbledon finalist Milos Raonic. Give yourself a chance at a great little, uh, I, I guess, winter gift uh, i know valentine yeah memento Piece i know of... Val valentine's day is over i know but <laughs> um it, it's, sorry uh... honey i meant to give this to you a few weeks ago <laughs> yeah, but if you missed the boat yeah. exactly um but yeah give yourself a chance to win a, a signed milos roundage ball with a special message from us as well uh just reshare the podcast find us on twitter at matchpoint can to do so 
if we continue in that sense, just on the men's side, before we get over to women's tennis, Milos Raonic was in action in Rotterdam. So was Felix. So was Dennis. It's Yannick Sinner who captures the title and wins his second title of the season. He's played two tournaments this season. Perfect 12 and 0 in 2024. He's the best player of the year so far, right? Aren't you interested to see where he finishes this year in terms of rankings? Like very. I mean, obviously, if he continues at this rate and doesn't lose a match ever, we know that he's gonna end up being number one. That's not gonna happen. But look, clearly, here's a young talent who has got so much confidence at the moment um, that is just looking forward and taking that momentum and and not wanting to share the you know, the mantle with anyone right now. And um, such a nice guy. Uh, love his post-match speeches, even after he beat Milos, who had to basically retire after the first set at 1-1 on serve in the second. You could kind of see in his eyes that he was actually, I think, disappointed that the match couldn't play out. Uh, I didn't see any sort of oh, celebration. He was very subdued. And I think he just handled that in a very classy way, but also a way that to me revealed that this guy wants to earn his wins. Yeah, that's that's well said. And I, I feel so much disappointment for, for Raonic. Uh, it's so unfortunate that he's gone through this again because we saw it a similar circumstance at the Australian Open at the front end of the year. He was playing a highly competitive match with Alex Dimenauer, who's in fact the finalist here in Rotterdam, and we'll get to that. And Raonic against split sets with Dimenauer and had to pull the plug there. Here he pushes Yannick Sinner very close in a tight first set, had a couple set points even. So you can tell, and I mean, we've said this time and again, you feel like a healthy Milos. He has top 10 tennis in him. And I felt this way for a long time. I know he feels that way. And I think that's why he's still pushing along. But if we recall, even in Montreal at Davis Cup, Raonic came and he wasn't ready to go just based on the hip, he had some concerns there if something can go wrong. And then you think you're putting him in a match against, you know, now the number three player in the world, the player who's just won his maiden Grand Slam title, 22 years of age, plays such a physical brand of tennis that for Milos to withstand that type of physicality on the court was going to be a challenge. And he his, his body unable to hold up again. So now you have to think, I, I think he's going to have to take an extended period of time off before rushing back. It's it's too bad that since he's come back, which was from an Achilles injury and an ankle foot injury. I mean, it's good that those haven't acted up again. At least it's not what kept him off tour for two years. But yeah. it is disappointing that it's been other things, whether it's the shoulder from too much serving or now the uh, the hip flexor. And so, yeah, when we saw him in Davis Cup, which was recent, he was saying, I, I'm getting closer, but I still can't do it today. Obviously, he thought he could do it in this recent tournament, but I spoke with him afterwards, Ben. I did reach out, and he said he was still playing with a a still-torn hip flexor, which to me, kind of wonder, like, why the, the rush to get back then? But maybe it's he saw it as a good draw or a good tournament that he thought he could hold up and still get a few wins and get some ranking points. He does want to get his ranking up for the Olympics this year, which is a big goal of his that he shared with us. Mm-hmm. But he said, unfortunately, it got worse and caused some other problems. And he's also revealed to me that he's going to be out for Dubai now, which was a tournament that he had previously wanted to play. So yeah. do we see him back for Indian Wells in Miami? Certainly, I can't see playing those two tournaments back to back being necessarily a good idea. You want him to have the best chance at playing out the season. And sometimes, yeah, it might have to be, you know, a step backwards in order to then take take two ahead. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And in this case, at least he did get that match play. He did get a couple of wins. Quarterfinals results obviously gets you plenty of ranking points. So that is a step in the right direction. And we he get looked to good. The, yeah, yeah, and he looked really good. I mean, especially that second match. I mean, he's playing Alexander Bublik, who we know, very dangerous top 30, top 25 type player, wins 6-4, six, 6-4, four, six, four, uh, 12 aces, held his serve every time, looked completely in control. We saw Yannick Sinner have all sorts of problems against his serve. No surprises. Everybody does. So the level is there. Uh, let's see if he takes uh, the necessary time. I, I want to get to the finals um, because I found it fascinating in a way that this was a rematch of our National Bank Open final from the summer. And at the time in Toronto, that was sort of the breakthrough in a sense for Yannick Sinner. It, it was like, climbing the mountain to his first Masters 1000. And it was a huge moment as well for Alex Dimenauer, his first ever Masters 1000 final, reaching career high rankings. And I don't know, for, for me, it was so cool to see now these two fantastic players, Sinner, backing himself up as one of the best players in the world, winning his second title on the year. And Alex Dimenauer continuing to surge since that big result in Toronto and now reaching a career high ranking as he's uh, cracked the top 10 up to number nine. So... Kind of a cool storyline. Yeah, for both of them, Toronto was such an important event. I think for Dimenauer, as much as for Sinner, even though he didn't win the title, but it was pushing him towards career high ranking and a belief that he'd be in the top 10. And I just remember the takeaways from me from listening to the Aussies post-match press conferences is he really felt like he was proving to people, you know, proving to the doubters that he belongs at the top of the game and that he's got that capability. And uh I found it surprising that that he felt there were so many doubters. I don't know what the reaction in his native Australia has been earlier in his career and, and how maybe tough the press was on him or, or or things like that. But I've always felt like he had a lot of potential. He works so hard out there. He hustles. Mm-hmm. Um, that that to me, he, like he never had to prove me wrong. I don't know about you. Like I never looked at this guy and thought, well, he's got a shelf life or a ceiling of only so much or so high. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not surprised at all at, at what he's been able to achieve. Yeah, I think he faced a few detractors in the sense that he doesn't kind of have that raw baseline firepower. And it, it was a really good quarterfinal match. I watched a lot of it against Andre Rublev, where he battled and, and beat Rublev in three sets. And he resisted Rublev's power so incredibly well. We know how well he covers the court, but he took his chances when he got them and unloaded some crucial forehand winners when he needed them and and sort of played that high octane tennis that he was forced to produce against Rublev, who, you know, hits the absolute crap out of the ball, is one of the biggest hitters on the tour. So that was great to see. Beats Dimenauer in the semifinals, like a really uh beats Dimitrov rather in the semifinals, like a really, really impressive performance. I just think the the way Yannick Sinner is playing, uh, I mean, who's who's gonna stop this guy? Obviously Novak Djokovic will be will be back soon, but Sinner right now as as things stand on the ATP circuit, he is obviously the guy to beat because he's undefeated this season. And aren't you interested to see what Djokovic is going to do? Like, what do you think oh, yeah. Djokovic is thinking about right now? And he sees Sinner win another tournament. And, I mean, I'm sure since that that loss at the Aussie Open, um, the wheels are turning. And I'm, you know, like last year, I was very excited to see Alcaraz and Djokovic, which there was so much hype throughout the early part of the season with them trading the number one ranking, but they didn't play each other for quite a while. And and I, I want to see now, like, I'm excited to see the Sinner-Djokovic saga rivalry continue. Yeah, same. Uh, I will 
briefly mentioned Felix Ojealiassime uh, fought through a tough win against Maxime Cressy in the first round, then loses to Andre Rublev in the round of 16. I thought it was super positive that it was a long three-set match, and he had three match points to defeat Andre Rublev. So that tells me his level is right there. Denis Shapovalov qualified, got a couple wins in qualifying before losing to Gael Monfils. Um, I guess before we get to the women's side, you know, Carlos Alcaraz, the struggles sort of continue. I mean, since Wimbledon, we haven't seen a title. He hasn't made a final since that epic final with Djokovic in Cincinnati. And in, in Argentina, just did not get it done. Nicolas Jari defeating him in the semifinals. I, I think suddenly people are a little bit more than concerned that this could be the sign of a trend that Carlitos is trending in the wrong direction. Do you think he gets back on the right foot um, by the time, you know, we're at sunshine double and moving into the clay season? I'm not worried about him, to be honest. Although as I'm looking at scores right now, he just gave Montero a walk over at the Rio open after just two games in the opening set. So I don't know if you're able to find something about that as I, ramble on here a little bit but uh, I'm not concerned about him I mean he's a super young talent that's already achieved so much the guy isn't even 21 years old yet and he's a multiple grand slam champion on multiple surfaces I think his rise last year was just so quick and so sudden and so you know you know aggressive in terms of how quickly he was adapting I mean how many times has this guy played on grass and look what he's done already so mm-hmm. um a blip doesn't surprise me. And if you look at even the Aussie Open, he loses to Zverev, who I don't like speaking too positively about this guy for off-court things, but Zverev's been playing some pretty good tennis the last little while. So it's not like he lost to somebody totally unexpected. He lost to one of the best players in the game right now. And I I think there's still so much to learn and so much to um, evolve with. Um, I'm, I'm not concerned. Truthfully, I'm not concerned even in the slightest bit. And even if, you know, the slump continues a little bit longer. I still think this guy is way too good not to course correct. And, you know, he's going to be able, very comfortable on clay when that comes up after the sunshine doubles. So if it doesn't click on the hard courts in the early part of the year, I'm sure it's going to click at some point shortly thereafter. Yeah, and I should mention, I mean, our Argentina being on clay just lost, uh, or sorry, just gave Tiago Montero a walkover. As you said, as we speak, I found the scoop here. He rolled his ankle um, very early into the match which is unfortunate. I don't imagine that's going to be anything serious. So maybe we see him back, take some time, get healthy and be be ready for Indian Wells. If we talk some women's tennis, before we get to your uh, court coverage interview with Anita Camilla, uh, we had the first WTA 1000 of the season in Doha. Iga Sviantek collecting a third consecutive title there, which is just incredible. She's won 23 consecutive sets at that tournament and you know sometimes when you just feel good in a certain place whether it's Novak in Australia Rafa at Roland Garros maybe Doha is Iga's place yeah and you know what like listen I've uh, covered not the Doha event but the Dubai one was one of the first tournaments I ever covered about 15 years ago my goodness I can't believe it was so long ago now and you know some of these tournaments are just known for taking care of the players and especially the star players and so She's going to be getting like the best treatment over there, no doubt. And you can't tell me that that doesn't impact you when you walk on the court that you've had a little bit more, you know, being pampered or treated well or taken mm-hmm. care of. And you're just in a very good place, both mentally and physically when you walk out on the court. So um, uh, 
you know, we see it with certain players at, at certain events that they just seem to click and they're creatures of habit and they get good vibes from things that have gone well for them in the past. And it gives them that little extra confidence when they step out on the court. I mean, look, even at the level that you play at, Ben, I'm sure when there's tournaments that you go to where you had success a year ago, you probably walk in with a little bit of extra oomph, you know, behind your game when you step out on court. Yeah, I think so. And you get the memories of like, you know, I played really well here last year and you get those kind of good vibes and good feelings returning. Uh, I'll, I'll mention and and Blair, you know, touched on it. Layla Fernandez had a really good week, I, I think, in Doha. She played some great tennis and she had a tough draw too. Ludmilla Samsonova in the opening round is very strong player. She beats her. Paula Bedosa, who I really feel bad for because she's had all sorts of injury troubles in the back, I think, recently flared up again, but she beat her in straight sets. And then she takes down the recent Australian Open finalists who were so high on in uh, Kinwin Zhang uh, to reach the quarters. So really good result. No shame in losing to Elena Rybakina, who was the finalist here. And and Leila is moving in a really, really good direction. Um, she did, I will mention quickly, lose to Jasmine Paulini second round in Dubai. But nevertheless, this is a positive step forward the past uh, couple of weeks here for, for Leila. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some big wins. And, you know, she's up to 33 in the rankings right now. And it doesn't seem like that long ago that she was in that 70 to 80 range. Yeah. And even when we talked to her, you could tell she was pissed about it. She wasn't happy that her ranking had gotten down to that level. Level She knew she was a better tennis player than that. We know she's a better tennis player than that as well. And, you know, she's inching up there to the point where, yeah, hopefully she's going to be seated for you know, the next Grand Slam tournament uh, in Paris, uh, where she's performed well in the past as well. And the higher she can get that ranking and hopefully have some easier early round matches, uh, you know, it's just going to continue to to bode well for her. But this, I think, was definitely uh, a very, very strong, encouraging result. And it's the kind of tennis that that we all know that she's capable of playing. Yeah, uh, well well said. Donna Vekic, by the way, credit to her for a massive upset. Arena Sabalenka in her first event back since winning the Australian Open. Vekic takes her out 6-7, love So we'll be following uh, the Dubai Tennis Championships this week. Before we go, um, Mike, you had a chance to speak with the Senior Director of Facilities Development at Tennis Canada, Anita Camella. Yeah, so a great initiative from Tennis Canada, the Covered Courts Initiative that is seeing more and more indoor facilities being built across our country and you know in most places in this country the the winter conditions just don't allow for outdoor court usage for many many months of the year even here in toronto which is in really the southern parts of canada from beginning of november until april good luck finding days where you can play tennis outside so we've had new facilities open this year in stratford recently in niagara falls as well there's going to be five or six others announced in the coming months here in 2024 too and so this is definitely something that Tennis Canada is strategically putting an emphasis on to help grow the sport, to help people who like playing the sport have more access to it year round. And, um, you know, Anita Camella's heart is definitely in the right place. Not only does she work for Tennis Canada, but she's a massive tennis fan. And we didn't get the chance to meet her while we were in Montreal for Davis Cup, but she was the one banging the tam-tam drums up there. The was loudest she? one. Yeah, she was the one <laughs> in the very top row. And I didn't find okay. this out until later when I connected with her and we realized we were both there. And she was the one leading the drumming uh, chant. So um, major tennis fan at heart, too. And you know what? These are the people that you want driving the sport in your country is people that aren't just doing it for a paycheck or because it's a job, but people yep. who are passionate about the sport. 
And Anita's definitely passionate about tennis. So I hope you enjoy my interview. Uh, here it is with Anita Camilla. I'm joined today by Anita Camilla from Tennis Canada to talk about the year-round community tennis courts program presented by Rogers. Here in Canada, clearly we have a challenging environment in terms of providing court access throughout the year. And so Tennis Canada is working hard to establish more permanent tennis courts to allow people to enjoy the sport 12 months of the year. Um, Anita, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Great to be here. Before we talk about this great initiative, um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your role with Tennis Canada and your history with the sport of tennis that led you to work in this capacity for your career. Sure. Um, my role is Senior Director of Facilities Development at Tennis Canada, and the role was created about eight years ago. Uh, and I've been with Tennis Canada ever since that role was created uh, for about seven and a half years now. And the real goal of it was to actually look across the country and see how we can create more facilities across the country for our national junior training programs in all the regions of the country, but as well across the country in every municipality. So we have more courts for people to play on year round. So there's an aspect where it's for uh, competitive players who are learning and developing, but also at the grassroots level, just putting rackets in people's hands to, to become active on a more regular basis, I guess. Absolutely. The goal is really to create community tennis centers, if you will. So community centers across the country that use tennis as a vehicle to get people active, engaged, hopefully introduce tennis as a sport of a lifetime for them, and then potentially uh, convert them into uh, players and high performance players and our future and next gen Canadians. Well, I never fell into that category, but as someone who recreationally likes to play, I, I certainly love what you're doing with this program. And there've been three cities this year that have benefited from this, uh, including Edmonton, Waterloo and Stratford. Can you explain a little bit uh, the development of the program, where the idea came from and, and sort of how things progressed from there? Absolutely. Uh, so when I arrived, we actually, as an inventory across the country, we actually didn't have a good grasp of how many tennis courts we had in Canada and how many were available for the general public for year-round play. So we conducted uh, quite a bit of research. We conducted third-party surveys, as well as our own research into every municipality and realized that our largest inventory of tennis courts is actually not owned, operated by tennis clubs and tennis operators. Our largest inventory of tennis courts across the country is, is sitting in parks and for the most part under municipal ownership. So we really thought we had to galvanize together, take a look at those, make sure they're quality courts so people can have great experiences on them, but also can some of them be more year round? So people are always saying, we only play tennis during the summer. How do we play year round? So we took a look at that closely. We talked to our partners at Rogers uh, and fortunately, Michael Downey uh, really caught on to this and, and presented to Rogers a great opportunity to come on board and be part of our year-round tennis community um, project program. So that's exactly what happened. Rogers and Tennis Canada equally put in $200,000 for each project that we approve. Our goal is to do four projects a year. We're going to keep doing this until 2029 and hope to bring on 30 new facilities and 160 new courts that are year round accessible to everyone uh, across the country. Wow, it's really ambitious, isn't it? Mm -hmm. When you were doing your research, um, as you mentioned initially, sort of just trying to get a grasp of the situation of courts in our country, 
Did you find there was a particular province or region that either had like a really high number of courts already or vice versa that was really lacking in that department? Yeah, I will, I will answer that by saying almost all of us. Um, so some provinces definitely different based on, you know, the population in, in certain provinces. We, we are a diverse country and certainly our population is, is spread out, not equally. But essentially we came up with an inventory of 7,500 courts across the country. That's how many we have for every Canadian to play. Only 750 of those were covered for year-round play. So that's 10% of our courts are covered for year-round play. So when we go inside during the winter, most people aren't going inside to play tennis. Um, so we really haven't caught up. As far as a ratio for our country's population, we're about one court for indoor play to every 50,000 population. Wow. So we are very low as far as that's a pretty big deficit of courts to population ratio ratio for year round. The U.S. has about one to 30,000. Germany's in and about one to 15,000. France is about one to 7,000. Wow. So you can see we're really far behind and we have a lot of work to catch up. There's a need for it for sure, obviously, when you present it that way. And it's funny when you say one to uh, 50,000, I think, you know, I spent my university years in Guelph, which is about 100,000 people. And I could think off the top of my head of, yeah, only two indoor options for that entire city. So there you go. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I played tennis all the time between May and October. Like that was my sport. And then it's funny because, yeah, October came around. I hung up my racket and that was it because there was just a lack of indoor facilities or a lack of indoor facilities that, you know, financially maybe, you know, were, were affordable as well. So how, how vital is it to the development of the sport? What can it do for the sport in our country having, you know, this increased presence of indoor courts for, for people to access? I think it's absolutely critical. Um, across Tennis Canada, we have departments that are working on our next generation of athletes that are working on quality coaches uh, that are working on safe sport experiences, engaging women and girls. There is a multitude of activity uh, going on at Tennis Canada, but we really don't go anywhere unless we have more courts for people to play on and more accessible and affordable courts for people to get introduced to the game. Yeah. And again, it's not just for the competitive side, although that's a big part of it, I guess, but right. really at a recreational level, that's the grassroots level so important as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our focus for me specifically is really about putting more rackets in hands, giving people a quality tennis experience. So they want to come back like you did when you were a kid to say, I want to keep playing tennis. And then certainly for those kids that get hooked when they're going through a summer program, they go back to their parents and say, I'd like to join tennis. Their parents actually have winter options for them to keep them in tennis. Yeah, right on. Um, from a financial perspective, and you spoke a little bit about how it was sort of 50-50 between Tennis Canada and Rogers. How difficult is it to get a project like this off the ground? It, honestly, this one was not difficult. Tennis Canada took a look at the research. Uh, the data spoke for itself. We knew what we had to do. Uh, we presented that to Rogers and they were a fantastic partner and came on board right away. So we both allocate $100,000 per project. We have up to $200,000 available for each project. And we work with the community right from concept of design, planning, right to grand opening. 
So I mentioned those three cities earlier in in our chat. And uh, what what's coming next? What's the plan for 2024? Are there cities or locations that are already earmarked, or are you still in sort of the um, you know research phase of that next step? Yeah, no, what we do now, um, it's great because for with every grand opening we do, we we tend to get more inquiries and more people finding out how they can also get year-round courts in their communities. But essentially our goal was four a year for the next uh, seven years. We've completed four and 22, four and 23. For the first time ever, we were oversubscribed. So we do continuous intake. So there's no one point in time during the year where you have to apply. We work with communities uh, at their pace in order to get their project ready for approval. This year, we had 10 applications for four positions. So we're quite excited about that. We're hoping we can move some of them into 2025, uh, depending on their state of readiness. And we're not quite finalized with those, so I won't say anything yet. But we hope to uh, announce those in uh, the first quarter of 2024. Right on. Well, you know, my parents still live in Guelph, so hint, hint, you know, <laughs> Guelph is one of those 10. Um, Excellent. <laughs> if there's any other uh, people listening from uh, municipalities who are interested in this initiative, would like to submit an application or find out more, Anita, um, how can they go about doing that? They can contact, it's pretty easy, coveredcourts at tenniscanada.com. We would love to hear from them. They can take a look at our uh, facilities website. So we're at tenniscanada.com backslash facilities. They can take a look at the programs we have available, the funding we have available, and we also have tons of resources for those that are contemplating and just want to understand these projects. We have tons of resources and tools available to them. So we'd love to hear from them. Perfect. Well, there you have it. I'm sure our listeners are going to be uh, eager to look into that, depending on how many covered courts they currently have where they live. Um, Anita, thank you so much for taking the time to stop by and chat with us today. Um, I'm sure this is going to be of interest to many of our listeners across the country. And uh, probably surprising maybe to listeners outside of the country to hear how few courts there traditionally have been in our country. And then when you think of some of the great you know, athletes we've produced in recent years, it's pretty impressive considering the limitations that we, we live under here. It absolutely is. We're definitely punching above our weight class considering uh, we don't have outdoor courts or even that many indoor courts for about at least half the year. So our players and athletes are, are doing phenomenal work to rise to the rankings that they're at. Well, keep up the good fight and you'll have to check back, back with us next year and let us know uh, what cities and what locations have uh, continued to benefit from this great initiative. I will for sure. Thanks, Mike. There you have it. Mike's conversation with the Senior Director of Facilities Development at Tennis Canada, Anita Camella. I, I remember I was actually there at the opening in, in Stratford just the previous year as, as the MC. And it's always just, you know, as someone who grew up, I guess you could not small town, but small city, Kingston, Ontario, it's so important for these communities um, to have like a year round community club. And it's something uh, I did have when I was a junior in Kingston, we lost it for a period of time. And now actually, if an indoor facility is open there, it's so important, I think, to grow these sports in communities like that, where you are going to get um, you know, you are going to build a, a strong sense of community, having a passion around tennis. Uh, and I, I'm sure the club in Stratford is going to going to be successful, as will the one in Niagara Falls and sort of any any community around Canada that can support this. I'm sure will be supported by the fellow community. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I think back to the years I was living in Guelph, Ontario, population at the time about a hundred thousand, more than that now. It's grown quite a bit, but. There were two indoor options for tennis courts there. One was kind of a, a, a you know, a ritzy club that you had to have some big bucks to belong to. Yep. And the other one was, you know, only so many courts 
And, you know, in a city of 100,000 people, it, it was tough to get court time there. So the more of these that open, you know, it's not that people don't want to play. It's the opposite. They want to play. They want to have more options to play at. And I know even here in Toronto, um, I guess we're probably one of one of the bigger venues in terms of indoor court options. But even here, don't you feel like it's hard to get court time unless you're willing to play at like 10 o'clock at night on a weeknight or something sometimes. So yeah. the more of these that we can find, um, absolutely better. And uh, nice to see Tennis Canada is really doing these grassroots initiatives to help out, you know, not just the things they do for professional tennis players, but this is to help people who just love the sport and want to play it year round. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Um, always well said from Blair Henley, who is our guest this week. And guys, remember, we have that signed tennis ball from Milos Raonic from the Davis Cup in Montreal as a special giveaway this week. So if you've listened, please reshare the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at MatchPointCan. You can find me at Ben Lewis, MPC, and you can find Mike at McIntyre Tennis, right? Yes, you got it. Thanks. I got it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Guys, thank you so much for listening. This has been Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time. <laughs>